It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'm Mr. Scott, one of the hosts of Kid Stuff, along with my friend Houston, and I wanted to come here to tell you about a couple important things coming up in March. First of all, the 17th is St. Patty's Day. The 18th starts March Madness. Yeah. Albert Einstein's birthday is on the 14th. There's actually Multi-Personality Day on the 5th and the 6th and maybe the 7th. <laughs> Spring begins on the 20th. Yeah. Which, of course, means more snow. We have daylight savings times. Daylight savings time. Start daylight saving time. That thing on the 9th. My birthday is in June, but that's never too early to start preparing. Justin Bieber's birthday is on March 1st. What? You know, do you all see the big billboard somebody put up with Justin Bieber's picture with the U.S.-Canada hockey game? It said, loser keeps him. Don't laugh, we lost. And then most importantly, March 2nd, next Sunday, Kid Stuff. Yeah. That's what we're getting to here. Next Sunday, Kid Stuff, come and see it. It's once a month. We only have three shows left, and the next one is next Sunday. It's at 1020, so if you go to the early service, you take your kids to Upstreet, you bring them back to church, and you get to enjoy Kid Stuff. If you're you people, you get to come early. I know that's tough for you 11 tenors. 10, 20, get here with your kids, bring them to kid stuff, you go to kid stuff, then take them up street, and then come back to church. You can do it. You can do it. Say it. I can do it. Great. And this month's virtue is forgiveness, which being the man and the husband that I am, I help my wife get better at that every day. Um, kid stuff, if you're not sure about it, uh, those of you that have kids in Upstreet, you may or may not know what they're doing in Upstreet right now. Hopefully you do. But if not, kid stuff is where you come to church with your kids and we go over again the same uh, character builders and the Bible stories that they're doing in Upstreet so that you have something to talk with your kids about. Because Upstreet's important, kid stuff is important, but what's most important is when you go home with your kids, what you're doing with them at home. And this gives you a chance to find out exactly what's going on with your kids, gives you some talking points. So come to Kid Stuff, even if you don't have a kid, you can come. You can come. I know some of you do. Okay. Um, everyone stand up. You got to do it. You got to stand up. Now, we're going to greet and meet, but when you turn to the person next to you, I want you to tell them how Kid Stuff has changed your life. Go ahead. Meet the people. Bye. Somebody asked me if I could moonwalk on the way out here. I think that's a different genre of music. I don't know if you can moonwalk to Lecrae. Hey, I want to start today with a question. And um, one thing I know is when you listen to a pastor, when you listen to a sermon, they ask lots of questions. It's real easy just to let it come and go and not really think about it. I really want you to, to think about this question. And I want to give you freedom to just be honest with yourself. Look, I'm not going to ask you to answer the question out loud. 
I'm not going to say turn to your neighbor and tell him what you said. You don't have to write it down. You don't have to mail it in. None of that. I just want you to be honest with yourself. And I want you to really just sit with the question for a minute. The question is, do you really believe the word of God is truth? Do you really believe that the word of God is truth? Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And we're going to continue this study on Philippians. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's page 831. Um, we, would, we don't have pews. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, it's page 831. If you have a pew, then you're in the wrong place. Um, again, we're in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 19 through 30. We're in the middle of a series walking through Philippians, a series that we're calling A Satisfied Life. How to have more joy, how to have more courage, how to have more contentment in your life. And one of the things that we've made perfectly clear thus far is that contentment, that joy, that satisfaction is not circumstantially driven. That it's based on something else. It's based on a deep knowledge, a deep understanding, and a deep love and understanding of God's love. So we're going to continue on in this study. Again, we're going to read verses 19 through 30. So hopefully you found it. You have your Bibles open. You're ready to take notes. But Paul writes, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks to their own interests, not to those of Christ Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the works of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him to you as soon as I see see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. He feels confident that he's going to get out of prison. He's going to be able to come. Verse 25. He says... But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my co-worker, my fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and, and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and he almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. I love that. Honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. Lord, we just ask that you would bless this portion of the service today, that even as I speak, that you would allow the words that are from you to penetrate into deep places, that those would be seeds that would bear fruit. Lord, anything I say that's not of you, would it just fall on deaf ears? Lord, we just, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you are doing and what you're about to do. Help us to be who you've called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So this small section of scripture is pretty straightforward. As a matter of fact, when you read through it, um, it just sort of feels like Paul's giving an update or even a, a travel itinerary. There's a great theologian who's written a lot in the last decade of, uh, um, his name is Karl Barth. And Karl Barth actually writes in one of the commentaries that here we have, he's talking about this portion of Philippians. He says, here we have a couple of paragraphs that contain no direct teaching. 
So the problem is we might be tempted as we're reading through Philippians to pass right through it. As a matter of fact, if you were to say to the average pastor, hey, we'd we'd like you to preach on Philippians, there's a whole lot of places you could go in Philippians and a whole lot of places you probably would go before you would pick these two paragraphs because it really does just feel like an update of the information. It feels like a travel itinerary, but it's much, much, much more than that. What Paul is doing is he's being very specific. He is making a point to to let us know about the significance of these two individuals, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. And what he's doing is he's using them as a living example. Like any good teacher, he is looking for an application. He's looking for an illustration to help the people who are listening to the letter to, to make application in their own lives. He's saying, look at these two men. They have modeled and they have lived out the very things that I have been teaching you as I write this letter. So we've been studying through Philippians and we've learned so far that we are called to be blameless and we're called to be pure, having the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. We, uh, we've, we've been taught already as we've studied through this that we're supposed to be obsessed with the advancement of the gospel, that if we are thinking about how the gospel goes forward, that it will, it will affect how we, how we receive people, how we respond to people. But if we're always thinking about representing Christ, advancing the gospel, that that will affect us, that we, we've been taught to be united, we've been taught to be one in spirit, we've been taught not to look to our own interests, but look to the interests of others, we've been taught never to complain, never to argue. As a matter of fact, we've even been taught that we're supposed to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. So we've walked through all of that already as we've studied Philippians, and the truth of the matter is, if we're not careful, all of that just becomes spiritual mumbo-jumbo. It just becomes words. It just becomes things that we've heard. It doesn't really take root. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that really mean? Obsessed with advancing the gospel. What does that really mean? Being one in spirit. What does that really mean? Hey, if you spent much time with me, especially in a teaching setting, you know that one of my pet peeves is what I call Christianese. I don't like it when we speak in Christianese. Do you know what Christianese is? Christianese is that insider language. It's using Christian sayings or what you could call Christian colloquialisms, and we throw them out there. They're just they're phrases that we've learned, and some of them are just phrases that we put together. Some of them are actually portions of Scripture, but we just say it. We don't really know what we're saying sometimes, but it's just become part of our language. If you are new to the evangelical church, you will be confused for a couple of years. Like, what are they talking about? We have all kinds of insider language, you know, and we don't just have insider language in the church. We actually have insider language or, or speak in these slangs and, 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 and colloquialisms in the world, too. So I started thinking about, like, what are the, some of the colloquialisms, some of the slang that we use that would confuse an outsider? So if you have ever spent time traveling... So been with people who were English as a second language, or maybe hosted an exchange student or, or somebody from another country. We confuse people with our sayings. We confuse people with little things. So we have words like riding shotgun. What do you think that means to a person who knows nothing about the English language? Riding shotgun. Or we say we're going to catch some Zs, or we say running off at the mouth. We tell people to hang loose. We say nip that in the bud. I said that one last night and surprised myself. You're going to nip that in the bud. What is that supposed to mean? We talk about getting some grub. You know, grub is not a little white worm-like thing. It's actually something you eat. That must confuse people from the outside. Wheels can be used for cars. Bad and sick actually mean good and cool, but cool has nothing to do with temperature. Threads are clothes. 
And then there's a whole list of words that I don't even know what they mean, but I hear them sometimes. Words like murked, YOLO, cray cray, ratchet, flex, and skrilla. Those are words that I have no idea what they mean. I'm guessing I probably shouldn't be using them in church. But the point of the matter is, it's insider language. It's just words that we've learned to use that for some people, they don't even know what they're saying. They don't even know what it means. But the truth of the matter is, we have the same thing in church. We have these phrases that we throw around. We have these, these words. So we say things like, you just need to leave it at the foot of the cross. The ground is all level at the foot of the cross. Right? We say these things, but have we really thought about them? Or I love this, and we say that we covet people's prayers. Or we often say we echo that prayer. And then you hear people saying, I echo that echo of that echo of that prayer. But anyway, we, we hear people referring to, this, I love this one, I have the gift of singleness. <laughs> or here's one that's interesting. If we don't know what it means, it, how, how crazy it sounds, we want to be transparent. Right? Or, or we talk about having divine appointments, or we use the word seeker-sensitive, or seeker-friendly, or seeker-driven, or seeker-oriented, even though nobody really knows what any of that means. We, we talk, this is one of my favorite sayings, you are the only Bible somebody might read. Right? Or this one, you hear people say, you just need to leave room for the Holy Spirit, as if he needs his own room. Right? So we have all of these things, or, or Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And the truth of the matter is, I'm not debating whether there's truth in this. I'm not trying to be controversial. I'm not trying to get you upset about it. The fact of the matter is, if you do not know what they mean, if you really haven't sat with them, if you really haven't internalized those quippy phrases that you're saying, then they really don't mean anything. They're just words. They're just sayings. The point of the matter is we can say things and not really know what they mean and haven't internalized them. What makes this section of Philippians so powerful is that it's a group of men, it's two men who are living out and they are literally a living application of the teachings of Philippians. They know that these are real words and that they are living into the teaching and living out the teaching. So it's not just words, it's words in action. So here's what I wanna um, ask you again. Do you believe that the word of God is truth? Do you really believe that scriptures are truth? He does. So keep in mind, one of the things I want you to think about is if I believe something, then, then it will affect my behaviors. As a matter of fact, your behavior informs what you believe. Okay, your behavior actually tells you what you really believe. So if I say I believe something, but my actions are contradictory to what I say I believe, then I don't really believe it. My actions inform what I, what I actually believe. So I can say, I believe, I trust that God is my provider. I trust that, that everything is God's. You know, it, it's all God's money anyway, right? There's one of those sayings we say in church. It's all God's money anyway. I believe that God is the great provider. I believe all that. But if I say those things and I don't give at a biblical level, then guess what? I don't believe either of those things. I don't believe it because my actions don't line up with what I'm gonna say. You follow what I'm saying? So our behaviors actually inform what we believe. I can say, look, my family is my number one priority. I believe my family is number one. But if I travel too much, if I work too much, and when I'm home, I ignore my wife and I'm not present with my kids, then guess what? My family is not number one. My actions betray what I say I believe. I can say, I believe God is good. 
I can say, hey, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's another one of those sayings. It's right out of scripture. We say it all the time. But do we actually believe it? Because guess what? If I say those things, if I say I believe those things, but when things get rough, when things get hard, if I wrestle control, if I do things my own way, if I get anxious, if I get fearful, if I fall apart, then I don't really believe what I'm saying. I can say, I can do nothing without God. If God doesn't show up, I I can't do anything. But if I go through life without inviting God into the everyday, if I don't have a prayer life that says, God, I need you to show up, then what I'm really saying is, I got this all figured out. I can do this on my own. I don't really need God. Our behaviors inform what we really believe. So we could go back to tithing or not giving. It's really a question, we would talk about it in terms of disobedience, but it's really a question of of belief. We don't have a crisis of obedience in the church. We have a crisis of belief. Because we can teach legalism and we can teach behavioralism, but the truth of the matter is if we really believed the promises of Scripture, if we really believed who God is in our lives, if we really had our belief systems correct, then our actions would change, our behaviors would change, and it would come from a place of knowing God. That's why Paul prayed for the Philippians. He said, I pray that you would know God more with knowledge and depth of insight because he knew that would change their behaviors. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three men. We're going to look at their lives, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and we're going to see what we can learn from their lives. So Paul's already written, he said that if I die, he says if I am poured out like a drink offering, a drink offering literally the, the, in, the, in the temple they would take a glass of wine and they would pour it on the altar and it would evaporate and go up. And Paul is saying even if I am poured out like a drink offering, or he's saying even if I die, Even if my life is poured out, even if I am going to rejoice, I am willing to die for you. I am willing to die for this church. I am willing to die. This is Paul speaking. I am willing to put my life on the line. Not only am I willing to do it, but I'm willing to do it and rejoice in that. And then he says that, this is just before the passage read, and then in the passage we read in verse 30, he says of Epaphroditus, he says, Epaphroditus, verse 30, almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourself could not give. You couldn't all come to me in Rome, so you sent him to minister to me. And we forget the perils of travel. If anybody ever traveled into a foreign country, it is very common to get sick. Even if you're going to a developing country, a well-developed country, it's just common. And it's because you're exposed to new germs. You're exposed to new things. It's very common to get sick, especially common if you're going into a developing country. I don't think I've ever been on a mission trip where I didn't get sick, at least for a couple days. It's just part of the deal. But guess what? When I get sick, I can open this little jar. It's got this stuff called Cipro or whatever it is. It's an antibiotic. I can take it. I get over it quick. Look, they didn't have any of that. Modern medicine has changed the shape of travel. Even the way we can travel has changed. But when Epaphroditus decided he was going to go to Rome, he put his life on the line. He knew that there was a real danger in travel. Not just danger from, from disease, but danger from being on the road. It was just a whole different thing. We, we kind of we romanticize travel. It's an easy thing for us. But travel was a whole different deal back then. So Epaphroditus put his life on Not only did he put his life on the line, but he actually got sick. And most scholars say he probably got sick along the way, but he continued to go, even putting his life at risk to make it to Paul, to bring what he was supposed to bring to Paul. 
So he, Paul says, hey, I'm willing to lay down my life. Epaphroditus was willing to lay down his life. It's so cool. One of the things I love about this section of the passage is that Paul is using language that the church in Philippi would have totally resonated with. They would have loved this because Philippi sat in a very strategic area. There was a major thoroughfare that ran north and south and a major thoroughfare that ran east and west. It was in a natural break in the mountains that allowed people to travel through the mountains into another area. So there really was no other way to, to, to get good commerce in all directions. So it became an integral hub. It actually had been fought over multiple times, but now the Roman Empire had taken over Philippi. They had Philippi, and in order to secure it, what they did is they made it a retirement community. They took their retired military and they placed them in this outpost, if you will, of the Roman Empire. And they also took retired um, government officials and put them there. So this, this retired community of ex-military guys, assuming that, hey, these people are going to stay loyal to the Roman Empire and we will keep this very strategic town. So that's their background. They're all ex-military. And so Paul writes in verse 25, speaking of Epaphroditus, he says, he's my brother, he's my coworker. He's my fellow soldier. He, he, he is the one who, who was your messenger. He's the one that you sent to take care of my needs. What he's, what he's saying there, he's saying, look, he's my brother, my coworker, my soldier. He is ideal. He actually fulfilled the mission you sent it on. He's painting a portrait of a good soldier. He's painting a portrait of a successful soldier. He's painting a portrait of, of this guy, Epaphroditus, who was willing to risk his life for the mission. He's, he's winning over the people reading the letter to Epaphroditus by using language they would understand. Not just understand, but they would love it. These are military guys, so he's describing a guy who stepped in in a military sort of way and risked his life for the advancement of the gospel, risked his life for Paul, risked his life for the people who sent him to bring help to Paul. Here's what I want you to see. This picture of Paul laying down his life, Epaphroditus laying down his life, it's scriptural. It's what we are called to do. So 1 John 3.16 says this. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we, that's you and I, ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then John writes in John 15.3, says, greater love has no one than this, than they lay down one's life for a friend. But the question is, how many times can you lay down your life? How many times can you lay down your life? Well, the truth is, there is no limit. You will have opportunity to lay down your life today. You will actually have multiple opportunities to lay down your life for someone else today. Because anytime you live into Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where it says, hey, do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Don't look to your own interest, but look to the interest of others. Anytime you live that passage out, anytime you say, look, this is what I want, but what I want really is important. I know what you need, and I'm going to do that for you. When you serve somebody selflessly, when you humble yourself, when you live into Philippians, you are laying down your life for someone else. And you have multiple opportunities in every single day to live this out. I love it. In 1 John 3, 17, which shock of all shocks comes right after 1 John 3, 16, which I just read for you, it says these words. It says, if anyone has material possession and sees a brother and sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? I love this because what he's saying is, notice it's, he's saying do something. 
This isn't just about feeling a certain way. It says if you have the ability to minister to someone, if you have the ability to move into the needs of other people, if God has made the needs of someone else apparent to you and you want to live this out, then you need to, to not worry about what you need and move towards that person. And what he's actually saying, and if you don't, how can the love of God even be in you? Those are hard words. The whole thesis of 1 John, if you read 1 John, it's an in-your-face sort of a, a, a book. And it's pretty short, but when you read it, the whole thesis is, look, God is love. God is love, and anyone who is born of God knows love. But those who don't love don't really know God. That's what 1 John says. That's not what Doug says. That's what scriptures say. But the question is, do you believe the word of God is truth? Do you believe the word of God is actually truth? Do you really believe that we are called to lay down our lives in the everyday for, for other people? Paul modeled it. Epaphroditus was literally willing to risk his life for the mission of Christ and for the people in Philippi and for Paul. And Jesus teaches throughout the gospel, just just hold on to this, throughout the gospels, Jesus teaches this one thing. He teaches that if you are willing to lose your life for me, then you will find it. He says if you want to have life, you have to lose your life. Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you believe the word of God is truth? Do you believe that you have to lay down your life in order to find life? There's this great passage in Isaiah that I want to read for you, but I want you to listen to it. I want to listen to it through the filter of do you believe? This is the word of God. This is Isaiah 58, 10 and 11. Just ask yourself, do I believe that the word of God is true? Because Isaiah 58, 10 says, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, if you satisfy the needs of the press, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday and the Lord will guide you always and he will satisfy. We're in the middle of a series called A Satisfied Life, more joy, more contentment, more courage. And, and what he's saying is if you spend your, your life on others, then he will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and he will strengthen your frame and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fail. Amen? That is a powerful passage. If you spend yourself on others if you spend yourself on others then all of these amazing things the fact of the matter is we know what it means to spend ourselves we actually know what it means to spend ourselves we spend ourselves at at athletic events and we're not even participants in the athletic event we're fans have you ever walked away from a a tigers game or any any you know maybe your kids are playing sports and you are physically and emotionally exhausted because of the amount that you have spent of your energy and your time. And I think we know what it means to spend ourselves. We can spend ourselves on a shopping trip. We can spend ourselves on a vacation. We can spend ourselves on a home improvement project. We have all kinds of creative ways to spend ourselves. But the question is, do we spend ourselves on behalf of others? Do we see the needs of others and pour our lives out to reach other people and to serve other people? Do we lay down our lives for others? Because when we do, the scripture says, then, listen to it, it says, then your light will rise in the darkness. Last week we saw that if you don't argue and complain, you'll shine like stars in the sky. We have a parallel verse here. And then it says, your night will become like noonday. Your difficult seasons will be illuminated. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs. He will strengthen your frame. How cool is that? 
If you pour your life out of it, if you're willing to give up your own life for the sake of others, the Lord shows up and gives you satisfaction. He gives you strength. And then it says you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. But the question is, do you believe the word of God is truth? Do you believe the word of God is truth? Jesus said, those who lose their lives for my sake will find it. The question is, do you want more life? The question is, do you want more of God's presence in your life? Do you want more strength? Do you want more joy? Do you want more satisfaction? Do you want more courage? Do you want more contentment? Because the scripture is telling us if you want those things, then you need to be willing to spend yourselves on behalf of others. You need to be willing to lay down your life. You have to be willing to serve. You have to be willing to serve in your home. You have to be willing to serve your family. You have to be willing to serve in your community. You have to be willing to serve in your church. That's why when you look at the six essentials, when we talk about what are the six things that you need in your life for spiritual growth, one of the key ones is that you serve because it's biblical, because the word of God says if you serve, if you lay down your life, then you will find your life. So serve. Maybe you want to join the, the 200 plus people that are already helping the young people to come to, that come to Grace to read at or above grade level. Maybe you want to be part of that. It's a way that you can give yourself away. Maybe you need to be a small group leader in the youth ministry, helping our youth to own their own faith so that when they leave this place and go off to college or go off to work, they're still walking with Jesus. Or maybe you're a musician or maybe you have technical skills and you need to serve so that on Sunday morning when people come and they don't know Jesus, they want to come back because of what they experienced. Wherever you are and whoever you are, the question is, where are you giving your life away? Where are you spending yourself on behalf of others so that God can show up? This letter that Paul is writing, he's giving us this clear picture of two men who are living it out, two men who are actually models and illustrations for us how to live out our faith. But Paul is saying clearly, hey, these guys, they loved me. They've served me. They've ministered to me. They're, they're very important to me. And even though they're important to me, I am going to send them to you. What is he doing? He's modeling this very thing. He's saying, these guys are good for me. They are bringing great comfort to me, but it's not about me, it's about you. So even though they're good for me, I have my own interests, I'm putting aside my interests, and I am sending them to you. I'm going to send Epaphroditus right now, and I'm going to send Timothy later. Even though these guys are good for me, I'm sending them to you. He's modeling this very thing. And then he tells us about Timothy. Let's look at a little bit about Timothy real quick. Look at verses 20 through 22. Paul is talking about his dear friend and his, he calls him his son, Timothy, even though he's not his biological son. He says, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks to their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. How cool is that? Timothy had a reputation for being mindful of what Jesus Christ's interests are. When was the last time we said to ourselves, what, would is, what is it that Christ is interested in? What is it that, that God really wants? What is Christ's interest? And that was our filter for how we lived our lives. Here's this guy, his name is Timothy, and front and center in his mind are the interests of Jesus Christ. He puts aside his own interests, thinks of the interests of Jesus Christ, and then he says, but you know that Timothy has proved himself. 
I love this because the Greek word for proved himself, we use two words, but it's just one word, and it means that he has been tested. He has been put to the test. He has been put through the suffering of Christ, and he has persevered, and his perseverance has produced character. We already learned about this. When Scott Strong was here, we talked about going through suffering and persevering, and that perseverance can produce character. It really means that he's been put into the furnace, and the furnace has burned away all the impurities, and what's left is this man who is, I love these words, he is unlike anyone else. He is mindful of others' interests. He is mindful of the interests of Christ. He is unlike other people. He is humble and he sacrificially serves. Timothy believed. He believed the words of scripture. He believed the teachings of Paul. He actually believed it and so his life and his behavior became living examples of what it means to lay down your life for a friend. The challenge is, do we believe our theology, or is it just theology? Do our stated and our verbalized beliefs line up with our actions? Are we examples like Paul and like Timothy and Epaphroditus? Here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you a little bit um, about this passage, because what stands out to me is these two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, for all intents and purposes, they seem pretty normal. They actually seem somewhat ordinary. They don't seem to have any of, as a matter of fact, I would even say the the word I've been using all week is these are second chair guys. They're not the guys in the spotlight. They're kind kind of just serving the guy that's in the spotlight. They're second chair guys. They're, They're not front line. They're not bigger than life personalities. They just seem to be very normal guys. And they don't seem to have what I would call the spotlight gifts. You know, they're not walking through a village and people are being healed by their shadows. I mean, that's going to bring a little bit of attention to you, right? Or, or they don't seem to be standing up as, as prophets for God and thus they is the Lord. There's something very ordinary and somewhat average about the calling that's on these two guys' life. And, and what I love about it is Paul doesn't say, hey, wait till Timothy shows up. Man, that guy can preach. Man, that guy can deliver the word. Or, or wait till a prophet showed up. Man, he's got the gift of healing. And, and when he touches anybody, they're going to be healed. And those would be good things. Those are great things. Those are gifts. Those are, there's nothing wrong with any of those. But these two guys seem to be somewhat ordinary in the way they're described. Neither of them seem to have their own church. Neither of them seem to have any titles. Neither of them seem to even be raised in a perfect family. So we know about Timothy. We know Timothy was raised by his mother and his grandmother. We know that his father was Greek. And we know that his father seems to be somewhat absent in the picture. But we also know that he's a pretty shy fella. That he grew up very timid and shy. But it also says of Timothy that he had great tenacity and great faith. But he's kind of missing a father, father figure in his life. And he's timid and he's shy. Yet 2,000 years later, we are standing in a church, we are sitting in a church, and we are learning about Timothy because Timothy had the faith, and he understood the words of God, and he was a servant, and he loved other people well. He loved other people sacrificially. He didn't have all of that, that glitz and glamour, yet he's an example to you and I of how to live out our faith. And then there's Epaphroditus. What do we know about Epaphroditus? Not much, but I can tell you this. He grew up in an era where the name meant something, right? So you think about the biblical era. When you got a name, your name meant something. As a matter of fact, if you had a change of heart, 
If you, if you started to walk with the Lord, sometimes they actually changed your name because they wanted your name to more match who you are. So names were much more descriptive of somebody than they are now. Now we just have names that are names and somebody probably in the places named their kids something that meant something to them. But for most of us, it's just what we like. It's what it sounds like. But then a name actually meant something. So Epaphroditus' name means that he is favored by Epaphrodite. Epaphrodite is the false goddess of love. And just to put his religious heritage, his, his family of background into perspective, this is what it meant to follow Epaphrodites. The custom was that every woman of the land who worshipped Epaphrodite, every woman of the land who worshipped Epaphrodite would have to sit in the temple and have relations with some strange man at least once in her life. Women would come to the temple in covered carriages. They'd sit in a sacred plot to Epaphrodites with crowns of cord around their heads. There would be great multitudes of women coming and going, and men, strangers, would pass through and make their choice. And they would cast money into the lap of the woman, and the woman could not refuse the man regardless of the sum of money because that would be a sin. And then she would follow the man outside of the temple, have relations with him, go away, and her obligation to Epaphrodites would be fulfilled. How sick is that? But that's his upbringing. That's his spiritual heritage. That's the culture that he grew up in. We are so quick to disqualify ourselves. We are so quick to say that we are incapable of having a tremendous impact in the kingdom because we just didn't have the, the upbringing. We don't have the credentials. We just, we just don't have what it takes. Whatever we think and all the ways that we think we're broken, we buy into the lies. And so we say things to ourselves like, I'm not smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I hear this one all the time. And can I just tell you, I, I hate this one. I am not spiritual enough. You're waiting for some kind of shazam. You're waiting for something to be, something that's not going to be, you're not spiritual enough. Or you say, I'm not good enough or I'm not gifted enough. But the question is, do you believe the word of God is truth? Do you believe that the word of God is truth? Because the word of God says that when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you became a son or a daughter of the living God. Maybe you didn't hear what I said. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you became a son and a daughter of the living God. Your lineage is perfect. Your lineage is beautiful. You are a son or a daughter of the one who spoke all of eternity into existence. No excuses. We can't say, I didn't grow up in the right kind of family. I didn't have what you had. I didn't, nobody trained me. None of our excuses hold up when we hold it against the word of God. The question is, do you really believe that the word of God is truth? These guys, they had amazing impact. Amazing impact, not because of their special spotlight gifts or, or their titles. They had amazing impact because they loved others well. Can you love others well? Of course you can. Can we do what Epaphroditus and, and Timothy did? Of course we can. Can we lay down our own lives for the sake of others? Of course we can. Can we say to ourselves, look, it's not about me. It's about other people. It's about moving towards people. It's about loving people with humility and sacrificially. Can we do those things? Of course we can. They are modeling for us that it doesn't take this, this super resume. What it takes is obedience to God. What it takes is an understanding of who God is. What it takes is trust in the words of Jesus Christ that says, if you lay down your life, I'm going to show up. Don't worry about it. I'm going to show up. So do it and know that the words of God are truth. It is our desire at this church that you believe, that you believe that deep down, not just believe, but that you 
believe that you are unconditionally loved, that there is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God, that God went to extreme measures to rescue you when he sent his son to die on the cross. It's our desire that you live into, that you understand all of that. And when you really understand how much God loves you, when you really understand who you are in Christ, when your identity is as a son or a daughter of the Most High God, then your behaviors will change. And you will be living examples like Timothy and Epaphroditus. We want you to believe We want you to believe that God has given you his spirit. The the scriptures say that I have given you everything you need for life and godliness. Do you believe the word of God is true? Do you believe that the word of God is true? Because God is saying, I have made you a son, I have made you a daughter, and I have empowered you through the Holy Spirit to do everything I've called you to do. We have no excuses because the energy that takes us forward is the energy of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. The same spirit that spoke the world into existence empowers us to be who God has called us to be. We want you to believe that you're beautiful. We want you to believe that you're awesome. We want you to believe that you're loved. We want you to believe that you are empowered. We want you to believe that you are righteous. It is our desire as a church that you believe and that you live out the teachings of Scripture the way Timothy and Epaphroditus lived out the teachings of Scripture. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm thank you for Timothy and Epaphroditus. I wonder if they can hear us, if they're sort of thinking... We just did what we were supposed to do, I'm sure. But Lord, I, I just pray. I just pray that we would believe. Lord, like Paul prayed for the church in Philippi, I pray that we would know you more and more with knowledge and depth of insight, that our hearts would be expanded and our understanding of you would grow and that it would shape the way we behave. Lord, I pray that we would be who you've called us to be because of the knowledge of you, not because... We're legalistic, not because we've come up with a bunch of rules, but because you are God, and you are holy, and you are awesome, and you love us beyond our wildest imagination, and may that love compel us to do and be who you've called us to be. Lord, thanks for who you are. Thanks for your word. Thank you that it is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we have a great opportunity. We are um, going to have a couple of baptisms. Um, here's what we believe at Grace. We believe that baptism is something you do after you make a profession of faith. So what we see in Scripture is people said yes to Jesus, and then they were baptized. We see it in jailers, and we see it in, in, in all kinds of people. They would say, yes, I want to I walk with Jesus, and then they were baptized. So, there's, so it's, it's something we do after a profession of faith. That's one of the things. We also believe that we should do it by immersion, so you're going to see people get in the tank. That is to represent the burial and resurrection of Christ. It's symbolic. It's a way of professing your faith. Here's, here's the deal. If you go to Grace, if Grace is your home church, and you have made a profession for, for Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, then allow me to speak for the Lord, you're supposed to be baptized. It's obedience, okay? So you need, you need to think about this even as you're watching. But, but we have a chance to hear a couple of people's testimony. They're going to come up. They're going to read a little bit of their story. Then they're going to go off and change. And then they're going to be baptized. And what I want to encourage you to do is worship. There's nothing like baptism. Just worship. And just see that God is working in the lives of some people. The, the first service, it was so cool. So... As we sing, as they get ready to come up and share their story, let's just enjoy this moment with them.